Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang damang sanghang namasami And we're all living this human life and there are so many options and there are so many experiences, there are so many things to learn and do. And if you really step back and you think, what's the most important? And I would say there are two things that are really most important in human life. And one of them is awakening enlightenment. And I'm going to talk about about that. Of course the Buddha the Buddha talked about that so much. He talked about how we can live our lives so that awakening occurs. And I think the other most important thing is how we treat each other. And those two things are related. So, awakening, I think sometimes we think that's so distant that we don't realize that there's so much that we can do to put in the causes and conditions for our own awakening. And that it's a process that has benefits all along the way. So one way to start to put some shape on that um, is to think about well, the things the Buddha taught about the first level of enlightenment, stream entry. What is it? What do, what do we do to bring that about? And the importance of making the effort to bring that about in this <laughs> lifetime. And the fact that that's possible for all of us. I, I, when I was spending time in Thailand, I was um, visiting a teacher named Ajahn Panyawado. He was a British monk who lived for about 40 years with Ajahn Mahabua, one of the, the great arahants of this, this time. He died a few years ago. And Ajahn Panyawato said, don't ever think that enlightenment is far away. It's right here. It's right here. There's a sutta that I just discovered recently in the Anguttara Nikaya where the householder, I don't know if you know kind of what that means, it's a lay person, a householder. Um, Anatapindika, you might know him from the chanting, you might know him from other suttas. He's a very, I think in general, very wealthy uh, householder, and he came to the visit the Buddha, as he often did, and he had 500 followers with him. 
going to pull it out here so I can read a little bit of it to you. And when he came and he paid respects to the Buddha and sat down, the Buddha turned to one of his chief disciples, Sariputta, and he said, You should know, Sariputta, that any white-robed householder whose actions are restrained by five training rules and who gains at will, without trouble or difficulty, four pleasant visible dwellings that pertain to the higher mind, might, if he so wished, declare of himself, I am finished with hell, the animal realm, and the sphere of afflicted spirits. I am finished with the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. I am a stream enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower world, fixed in destiny, heading for enlightenment. I thought that was really interesting. You know, you don't usually, I'm, I don't know if I've ever seen the Buddha sort of encourage someone to declare that. I mean, most of the experiences I've heard about, if people try to say, well, I've gained this, the teacher usually kind of breaks them down. You don't see much encouragement to say, I'm a stream enterer. And my experiences around people who do, usually the idea is, well, if they're saying it, they're not. And maybe that's true. I know even at the time of the Buddha, somebody came to him one time and said, you know, there are monks here who, who say that they're arahants. There are monks here who say that they're, they're non-returners. There are monks here who say they're once-returners. And there are monks here who say they're stream-enters. Now, are they, or are they overestimating? And the Buddha said, some are, and some are overestimating. <laughs> and it's interesting, this, this idea of how do you know? How do you know about someone else, and how do you know about yourself? And uh, again, Ajahn Panyawato, he said, it's really hard to know who's enlightened, but it's easy to know who isn't. <laughs> and, and maybe it doesn't really matter if we know or not but that we're on that course and we see those things that the Buddha said are part of that awakening, developing in ourselves and we're putting in the conditions that create that that make that happen so let's see what these um, five training rules are but you have some guesses about that and what these um, four pleasant visible dwellings are. So what are the five training rules by which his actions are restrained? Here, Sariputta, a noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. His actions are restrained by the five training rules. And what are the four pleasant visible dwellings that pertain to the higher mind, which he gains at will, without trouble or difficulty? Here the noble disciple possesses unwavering confidence in the Buddha. 
unwavering confidence. The Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is the first pleasant visible dwelling that pertains to the higher mind, which he has achieved for the purification of the impure mind, for the cleansing of the unclean mind. So, we practice, we, like, the chanting morning and evening is designed to continue to remind us of these qualities of the Buddha. These qualities that actually are the qualities of the awakened mind. And having unwavering confidence, going beyond doubt that this is possible. And this has happened. Now, how does that happen? I mean, obviously, chanting it morning and evening, calling it to mind. I know people who have taken up the practice of having a mala where they recite that. Actually, all three parts. We'll get to the Dhamma and the Sangha, and some of you know know it already. They'll recite that for each bead, right? And of course, that kind of settles into the mind. But obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a, a kind of direct investigation of those qualities and of our experience of being in the presence, if we have that opportunity, of someone who's awakened. What's that like? What are they like? Here the noble disciple possesses unwavering confidence in the Dhamma. Thus, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. This is the second pleasant visible dwelling that pertains to the higher mind, which he has achieved for the purification of the impure mind, for the cleansing of the unclean mind. It's a process, isn't it? Every part of our behavior, of our thoughts, of our speech that's not pure, that can be cleansed. It gets cleansed through the diligence and the wisdom of what is wholesome and unwholesome, the willingness to strive to cleanse that but also not a tightness, not guilt, um, but this, this beautiful engagement with what is really pure and this gradual purification. It comes through keeping the five precepts. It comes through reflection on these qualities and seeing these qualities in the, in the Dhamma that we that we read, that we listen to, and in the people who are developing on the path and in ourselves.
Again, the noble disciple possesses unwavering confidence in the Sangha, thus. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way, that is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. This is the third pleasant visible dwelling that pertains to the higher mind, which he has achieved for the purification of the impure mind, for the cleansing of the unclean mind. I think this one's a challenging one for people. People will ask me, how can I have faith in Sangha when I see things that are going wrong? And the Buddha said, there's another sutta that I like, that the Buddha says, don't put your faith in a person. If you put your faith in an individual, then what if they mess up? What if they disrobe or what if they, you know, die, move away? He said if, if a person really, okay, this is the one he, you know, this is the one I follow, this is the one I have faith in, he says then something goes wrong and then they, they don't associate with other teachers, they don't associate with other practitioners, and they miss out on hearing the good Dhamma. So what do we do? I mean, there are certainly guidelines that the Buddha gives about finding a good teacher. It's one that won't do something motivated by greed or hatred or delusion. That they're really true. But the kinds of the, the times when people say to me, I'm having trouble with confidence in the Sangha. And of course, we're talking about the the enlightened sangha, right? Is because they they see things like the gender issue. You know, how can these monks who have gone so far down the path discriminate against women? How can they have these cultural biases? How can there's so many things? And one of the things that that I feel I've observed spending time in Thailand, spending time with, I think, people who have an amazing amount of attainment, is that it seems like they operate on two different levels. You're in their monastery, you're in their presence, and the work that is happening on your consciousness is so profound. And they help you. And yet, the actual face-to-face interaction might feel really like either there's nothing there, there's, you know, or even a verse. And it's really interesting to me. It's like there's something that goes on in consciousness at a level, that spiritual level, that seems like that's a different thing than whatever kind of personality or cultural biases or conditioning or, you know, ways of doing things. And I think what's important when we're on the path is to not get hung up 
on what happens on that material kind of mundane level. I mean, obviously, this person has to be virtuous, not doing things that are, you know, harming. The Buddha never gave any allowance for that at all. But these other things are more like, you know, views about how things should work. And the gender issue, for example, has a tremendous complexity about it when you're in a culture where that's really embedded. So I've, ne I've never um, experienced anything that I felt was detrimental around that in a certain sense, in a, in a real sense. But there's no like, you know, come to my monastery and be bhikkhuni, you know. And yet, in consciousness, I feel like I've definitely found the help and support to actually follow this path to full ordination from people who otherwise openly or on the mundane level would speak against it. It's amazing. It's interesting. And I think for what's important is that we don't get stuck in our own development, that we recognize that we can that we can actually find through our own investigation and our direct experience the the truth about Sangha and how it does how does it say it? Create the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. It's so beautiful. And then what about the fourth one? Again, the noble disciple possesses the virtuous behavior loved by the noble ones unbroken, flawless, unblemished, unblotched, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. This is the fourth pleasant visible dwelling that it pertains to the higher mind, which he has achieved for the purification of the impure mind, for the cleansing of the unclean mind. Back to virtue, unbroken, unmodeled, These are the four pleasant visible dwellings that pertain to the higher mind which he gains at will without trouble or difficulty. You should know, Sariputta, that any, any, any white-robed householder, so this is a person who's declared this, this purification, this desire to be a disciple, this commitment, whose actions are restrained by the five training rules and who gains at will without trouble or difficulty these four pleasant visible dwellings that pertain to the higher mind, might, if he so wished, declare of himself or herself, I'm finished with hell, the animal realm, and the sphere of afflicted spirits. I'm finished with the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. I am a stream-enterer, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower world, fixed in destiny, heading for enlightenment. And then the Buddha said these verses, Having seen the peril in the hells, one should avoid evil deeds. Having undertaken the noble Dhamma, the wise one should avoid them. 
to the utmost of one's ability, one should not injure living beings. One should not knowingly speak falsely. One should not take what is not given. One should be content with one's own wives and should refrain from the wives of others. A person should not drink wine or liquor, which cause mental confusion. One should recollect the Buddha and ponder on the Dhamma. One should develop a benevolent mind which leads to the world of the devas. When things to be given are available for one needing and wanting merit, an offering becomes vast if first given to the holy ones. I feel like I've seen that. I've known that to be true. There is... um, a creation of a certain kind of abundance through giving to enlightened beings. Now, some of that might seem really foreign Where do you find an enlightened being in San Francisco? It's not to say that we're not—they're not here, you know. I think what we can do is look at what the Buddha talked about—the qualities that people develop—and see them. Um, Notice when our own practice has developed. Notice when we see the changes in others along this line of development and try to see it as plainly as we can as clearly as we can and always build on it as much as we can because even if we think oh okay I've, I've managed to gain this much that's good but my work isn't finished keep focusing on what is the next step and move in that direction. But what happens as we purify? I mean, any of us, any of you, if you've been practicing a while, meditation, precepts, then you can mark how much better your life is. I mean, I see it with people who've taken the precepts three weeks ago. You know, all of a sudden, Something big is changing. Something big is changing in what they see in the people around them. The suffering that's caused by the kinds of things that are that happen when we're not keeping precepts. And then this working with these these qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the awakened mind seeing the truth of the way things are, living purely, as purely as we can, and how that kind of does this subtle work on us. There are some other places where the Buddha talked about entering the stream, where he talked about the the chain of dependent origination, really understanding cause and effect, understanding that 
everything's falling apart. This is such an important part, oftentimes in the suttas. Um, that's the moment where the shift occurs. That shift that brings brings us past uh, the, the, the lower realms where there's never going to again be a falling back. There's this little piece here that says this is the benefits of stream entry because there are these six benefits in realizing the fruit of stream entry. What six? One is fixed in the good Dhamma so you're settled in it, you're solid in it. One is incapable of decline. One's suffering is delimited. So there's a definite limit to the suffering. One comes to possess knowledge not shared by others. One has clearly seen causation. One has clearly seen causally arisen phenomenon. These are the six benefits in realizing the fruit of stream entry. So that idea that everything in this realm is falling apart. And and that's completely okay. There's nothing to be unhappy about because that's its nature. And how do you come to that kind of realization? It's more than thinking. It's not through thinking about it. There's a place where the Buddha says when you try to understand the the chain of dependent origination. It's not that you think, oh, this causes that, this. It's not a thinking process. It's not a reasoning process. It's a realization. How does that happen? Well, one way that it happens is by really looking at what's right in front of our eyes. Really looking at how the body falls apart. How the mind falls apart, how quickly feelings change, how, you know, even though we're, you know, getting getting in the car and turning it on and, and it, every day so far it's started, it doesn't mean that it's going to start the next time, <laughs> that everything in this realm falls apart. Now that sounds depressing, but it isn't. The, the key of this of the realization is that what comes with it is joy and and it's it comes as a surprise really it's like to see the truth means we become more and more joyful all along the way and when there's a realization like that then what happens is this joy that can't be suppressed Now sometimes, as a person progresses in the path and the practice, we can have these realizations. Realizations, like I said, they're not about reasoning. They come about because we've put in the conditions, doing the work, doing the meditation, purifying our minds, purifying our behavior, purifying our speech, developing the more skillful qualities of being able to deal with different mental states. 
then something occurs. Something breaks through. But the question is, then what do we do with it? Because it's so easy for us to revert to our ordinary habits of thinking. So it's important to notice, you know, if if some realization comes, that we really bring that to mind again and again and again. Not just the idea of it, but also the feeling of it, so that we can build on it can take a realization and actually work with it and, and and then it will grow, expand, develop so that we see more and more around the edges of it. You can work on the same realization for a year, maybe more, and see it develop so that there's a fuller understanding of the whole picture of what the Buddha taught and what he talked about. This None of this stuff that I'm talking about is outside anyone's reach. We all have this potential, and we all, many of you have had experiences like this, I can, I can bet. It's like, this is, you know, like what you put your attention on, that develops. Putting your attention on this may seem... You know, like it's not the most important thing at the moment when you're trying to deal with whatever the issues are of the day. But ultimately, it carries us beyond the mundane stress. So... You know, so much of the Buddha's teachings, really all of it, he was trying to show us, you know, what we need to do to put in the conditions for this to occur. Everyone can do that. And then being attentive. And it's really helpful to have a teacher, someone who can point us in the right direction and answer our questions. So, what does this have to do with the second important thing? Because, you know, so much of, of what we are engaged in in those five precepts, of course, is about other people, other beings, about other people. We really make our karma with other people. And, and as we develop on the path, automatically there's a growing compassion and kindness. It automatically comes. A concern for other beings. An interest in their welfare. I think there's less and less concern about ourselves and more and more concern about others. There is a monk, um, okay, I don't think I want to use that analogy. There are some, some things that monks say sometimes that point out the, the impossibility of 
harming, deliberately harming another being once you've attained a certain level of, of development. That it's just something you couldn't do. You just couldn't do it. And you can see that just, you know, like when we were working with the spider here a little while ago, you know, obviously that's your practice. You, you, you no longer, if you ever did, I know people who, you know, their custom is <laughs> the end of that problem. But that's a whole different feeling, right? When you, when you take little beings outside and you have that care... It changes the heart. I don't know. I don't know how much advantage it is for the spider. I don't know how much longer they would live, or if they're having a good life, or if their next life is going to be better. And I don't know any of that. <laughs> but for sure, it has a it has an impact on us. It has a big impact on us. It's a purification of the mind. These little things build up, like drops in a bucket. Eventually, you've got a full bucket. We all have that potential. So, this this cultivation, I mean, obviously, how we treat people is very much changed by how we keep the precepts. I mean, the, the Buddha also said that when you, when you take the precepts, then... You're, you're creating this safety for, for countless beings because you're not going to kill. You're creating safety. You're not going to take what they don't offer you. You're creating this safety for yourself, too. And it creates this stability in the heart. So when we have unwavering confidence, there's a stability there that no one can shake. And ultimately, nothing can shake. So all these things that happen as things fall apart in our lives and things fall apart in the world, we can see them for what they are and we can know that we just move, move on. There's a stability inside that goes beyond this physical life. And at the same time, this growing interest in protecting and supporting and caring for others. So that we want to spend our time helping. We want to look things like climate change in the face. We want to acknowledge what's really happening because there's nothing that we want to turn away from out of fear or out of grief. But that we that we want to see and that we can really be present with this sensitive, fragile, beautiful, and so varied and magnificent world. And that we 
find our strength in protecting it and coming together to turn things in our world. I mean, right now we're on a really, really dangerous course. I think we all know that. It's not sustainable. It's hard to get let that fully sink in, but there is so much we can do and so much that needs to be done. And it needs to be done together. And it's it's about taking a stand for a different way of relating to the world than what we're seeing in our popular approaches and systems and values. When enough of us take that stand with that kind of stability, commitment, things will change. I have no doubt. Because it can't be otherwise. So, I'm really interested in hearing what you think of what I just said. What comes to mind? I'd love to hear questions, comments, doubts, um, successes. So I um, very much relate with the part um, when you talk about things break. And I get a lot of peace in my life uh, knowing that everything's temporary. And so I don't have expectations to control the outcome of things. And that helps me just uh, very much enjoy life much better. Yeah. I do my part and the rest I give up. And uh, the outcome is the outcome. Mm -hmm. I've invested only so much, not entirely. Can you hear him in the back? Uh Uh-oh. So can you turn around and say that again? Because I think it's really worth hearing from you. (laughs) Um, I was saying that I was relating quite a bit to things break. Because I, um, you know, in my life I I find kind of peace in the fact that everything is temporary. And so it allows me to... You know, invest only so much in the outcome, and uh, I do my part, and then you know, give up the rest, basically. Um, so, yeah, that was great. And I like the smile that comes with it. The little, like, you know, it's like, yeah, this is the way it works. I had a friend who was coming to Dhamma talks for a while, and and. He started to really take in the fact that when when we make mistakes or when things go wrong, that that's normal. And he was managing a group at a high-tech company, and there was a lot of stress over the demo, you know, not working. And this was a, anyhow, the big brass were coming in, and, and um, one of the team members was really upset, and, and this friend said, but isn't it normal for things to not work? And the person went, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like the whole thing just kind of diffuses and say, oh, right, right. We're living in the realm where things fall apart. What do you think? is key about what you said about getting depressed. I, I know about that. You know, the, over the last years, you would think, okay, she's a nun. She's not going to get depressed about this. Oh, <laughs> you really look at this and it's, it's depressing. Um, but there are ways out of that. And, you know, the Buddha said really 
it's important for us to see what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And when the mind goes negative like that, that's obviously an unhealthy mental state. So we have to find our own ways and we can share ways with each other about lifting up the mind, even though, you know, we're looking at this mess. And there are ways. And so part of it is that I, I have a diet. I, I keep myself on a diet of how much I'll expose myself. I want to know what's happening, but I don't want to dwell. Um, I want to know what to do, and I want to do it. And probably the best thing is action. And action comes at different levels. On the personal level about recycling and trying to encourage our housemates to get the right thing into the right bin, you know, and, and use less. And there are, there are some really interesting stories around people reducing, eliminating plastics from their lives, um, being able to really reduce their waste. And it's one place to put energy, but we also see that unless we change on a systemic level, uh, we're not going to really be able to make enough impact to uh, turn things around. So that systemic change comes from the other kinds of things you're doing. You get together and you watch the movie and you talk about it and you start to look more at what kinds of um, collective things we can do to change the way things work. Because a lot of times we're contributing to the detriment of the planet, not because our very presence is detrimental, but because of the systems that we use. And the systems need to change so that it's easy to do the things that support the replenishment of the planet, and it's difficult to do the things that harm it. And so that's going to come about through our getting together. That getting together means aligning with a group. Uh, the best group that I've seen and I've, I've heard um, talked about is 350.org. Does everybody know what 350.org is? If you don't, you don't. Okay, that's important. And I ask people that in other contexts, and a lot of people haven't heard about 350.org. It's an organization that started in the 350 as the focus on the parts per million of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's safe. And we're up, we're up at 400 now. And that's really, um, it's dangerous. And we need to find a way to drop that back. So 350.org is doing very good work. And one way that you can kind of um, evaluate an organization is according to how truthful are they about what's really happening. And if, if people, if people, organizations, government, whatever, if they, if they want to water down the truth um, instead of really owning up to what's happening to our climate, to our environment, then that's not a good group to align with. The climate truth and living in climate truth means that we actually say the way things are and we don't back down just because it's unpleasant. Somebody doesn't want to hear it. So a group that lives in climate truth and then a group that has a plan for the things that need to happen in order to change this around. And 350.org 
I don't know if they have a plan that leads from here to a sustainable world, but I think they have a pretty good trajectory. So it's easy to um, get in contact with that and get on like a chat group or a mailing list and see what kinds of things to get involved in. Those big actions, you don't have to be an activist for this. We just need to be a normal citizen who wants to have a livable planet. And everybody who is coming from that place needs to get out there and just, first of all, celebrate the beauty of this, the amazing beauty of this planet and the amazing opportunity we have to live life on it and to really express that we care about this. We care about the children. We care about the future generations of all beings. And then the actions that you take are really just as a group, as a very large group, saying, no, we're not going to keep these systems that continue to destroy our environment. That's what's actually going to make it change. And that is totally possible. We have all the technology that's needed. Renewable energy will become the most cost-effective energy as soon as we take the subsidies away from the fossil fuel industry, for example. It's totally doable. When there are enough voices saying, we don't want any more of business as usual, then we'll start getting the solutions in place. Any other comments, questions? Do you feel like solid on the path to stream entry? Have you passed that point? No, you don't have to tell me those things. <laughs> what are the big questions? Where are the challenges? Oh, yeah, I have one. Yeah. So, I don't know how to. So it's like the more I practice, the more I feel like I'm kind of breaking apart, does that make sense? Like, sort of. I, I don't know how to describe, like, kind of like... And I don't know what to do with that. It's like... It's like, I don't know what to do, where to go, or... Sort of what makes sense. Um, does that make sense? Let me see. So, what I heard you say is you feel like you're breaking apart. Like, questioning everything. Mm -hmm. There's no cohesive story anymore. Yeah. There's no cohesive you. Like, I had a plan. How There's exciting. No <laughs> there is no plan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I had a plan. I had all these goals, but now they're all kind of mm -hmm. falling yes. apart, actually. And, and I don't know almost yeah. what to do with that or how, mm -hmm. or how to be or what to do or where to go yeah or, yeah um this is great <laughs> how exciting okay the reason i think it's great is because it's unsettling oh yeah but it will i believe what i hear okay. based on experience and what i see in in the Buddhist teachings is that all this all this facade has to fall away. Right. All of this pretense. Like 
we have to be here, really here, like so genuine, so present to this moment. When we kind of just let all of that fall away, then we see what's there. Right. We have to we have to experience what's there ourselves. We can't depend on somebody else's description of it. Right. When we actually let all of that happen, what's at the core isn't unsettling. It's solid. It's solid and it's true and it's dependable. So you're, it's a stage. Not a fun stage. No. <laughs> but, but you can also not take it too seriously. Right. Okay. And just keep on going. Let all the, let it all fall apart. Let all, because all kinds of things change when we're on the path. The things we liked, we don't like anymore. The things we thought were important, it's just not important anymore. The things that used to irritate us, it's like, now maybe some new things irritate us and we have to look at that <laughs> because we're peeling it away. Right. We're, we're getting down to the depths. Why, why do I feel worried about this uncertainty? What, what is it that's really worried in there? You know, all that investigation is valuable. Mm. If we're uncomfortable, we're suffering. If we're suffering, apply the Four Noble Truths. To really know that suffering, really be present with it. Look underneath what is really at the bottom of this. If we say, oh, it's attachment, that's too glib. That doesn't get us anywhere. we got to really look. In this case, what is under there? What is really, what is that sense of lack? What do I feel like I'm lacking? And then realize that whatever that quality is, it's boundless. And it can come in. Waiting. <laughs> yeah. Waiting and be proactive, too. <laughs> okay. So what, what do I do, sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in this space where, you know, everything's kind of breaking apart internally, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Externally, my life's great, really. <laughs> but... Um, I almost feel like I'm grieving in a way, mm. sort of. That's know. another level of suffering. Um, so yeah. what to do is keep being meticulous about the precepts, keep being meticulous about, you know, thought, word, okay. action. Surround yourself with noble people, people who are really, really good. Use them as good examples in the areas where you've got growth to do. Um, mm. And listen to Dhamma. Listen to good Dhamma. Read Dhamma. Um, really bring that in. Um, you know, have, have sutta books next to your bed and open them up. <laughs> and um, really explore. Memorize Dhamma. You know, take it in, memorize the chanting, um, carry it in your mind, let it sink into your bones. 
and then see how you apply it. Okay. You know, how does that apply to this grieving process? Well, I've been really looking at or listening a lot to about self and no self. Mm -hmm. And um, well, at one point, you know, so important for me to have, feel a sense of self. And I actually was very attached or proud of myself. Yeah. Where that sort of falling apart and not quite sure what to do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. I think it's important to ground yourself in the Dhamma. Okay. Just ground yourself in the Dhamma and let that personality, that, that idea of I'm this, I'm that, yeah just fall because right. it doesn't matter none of that's going to go with you when you die <laughs> no no but um no that's not I like some aspects of my personality <laughs> 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 yeah So then, you know, somebody brought this up. It's like, oh, so what is the meaning of life earlier, I think? And I, I actually have been thinking about that quite a lot. Like, so everything is impermanent. It's really not about, you know, outcomes. Um, then what? How, how do you be? What do you do? You know? Yeah. Why do I go to work? Mm -hmm. Oh, these are really good questions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, I, and, of course, you know, it's really what really makes the difference is when we discover those answers in ourselves. Okay. And when we, when, we land, when we land in the truth, when, the, when it's really the truth, there will be joy there. Even if everything is stripped away. Right. But the process you're in is really great. Oh. <laughs> Stick with it. Keep peeling it away. Keep keep looking for those answers. Those questions are really, really good. And and keep looking in, in what the Buddha taught for the cues. We could have another comment if you want. If there's anyone else. What is the essence of awakening? The essence? Mm -hmm. The essence of awakening is freedom, I would say. That we're not any longer bound by greed, hatred, or delusion. And we're completely at peace. That's that's what the Buddha taught that awakening really is. I like that because I can, I can understand it. You know, it's not some kind of 
ungraspable idea. Freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. And you probably can experience moments when you don't want anything and you don't want to get rid of anything. Certainly experience moments of real clarity. The Buddha talked about glimpses of Nibbana, that you can, you can get a, a catch sight of it. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Does that resonate? Yes. Good. Mm-hmm. Also, I've been thinking about this impermanence. I find that some people, when they talk about impermanence, they are like, they associate it with non-attachment. It's like totally detached. So when they're in a relationship, so afraid to um, to be hurt. Well, it sounds like an excuse to me. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a this is an important point of confusion, I think, because. This is going to be hard. I think this is hard to understand, maybe. We can really come to realize that love is suffering. The Buddha said, if you have one love, you have one suffering. If you have two loves, you have two suffering. <laughs> you know, it's, it's suffering. And the more we, I think... Well, my experience is the more that we recognize the suffering nature of these relationships that we have, there's a way in which we become less attached and more caring. So I, I don't think that there's a genuineness in it when we say, well, I don't, I don't want to be like, involved. I don't want to care about you because then I would be attached. I think that does come out of fear. I don't think that that's real, the real non-attachment. See, this is what's kind of like a paradox. We care more in a certain way, but we have less, it's less about us, because we've realized that there really isn't anything here to... benefit from this. Does that make sense? So so to to really see that this isn't about what I can get. This isn't about me feeling safe. This isn't about, you know, like my end of it. You know, this isn't about I don't I have to stay away because otherwise I'll be too afraid or I'll get hurt. Says I once we get once we really embrace the fact that everything's falling apart that it's suffering to lose what we care about. There's, there's a capacity to care that goes way beyond this idea of, you know, what can I get? struggle with the Buddha's teaching about not keeping company with the foolish. And that 
that seems divisive to me. It doesn't seem spiritual. It doesn't seem, I mean, I get what, what it means, but it, the other side of it is that, you know, you, you hang out with people that are more enlightened than you or more, you know, mm -hmm. people that you aspire to do more life. Mm -hmm. But what about the other people, you know, it's not all about what we need for ourselves. It's about what can we give as well. And, and you know, how are these people supposed to rise above, you know, their states, you know, the hatred, greed, and delusion if all the wiser people don't have anything to do with them? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so this is a really good question. And we have to look at kind of the full teaching of what the Buddha gave around this. <coughs> he said that you exactly what you said spend time with people or serve people um, venerate people who have gone beyond you that you can learn from um, as we're struggling to get our own feet on the ground to get our own selves solid we need to really work at looking to those who are more solid and and spending time with them and emulating them and learning from them. It's not a good time to try to pick somebody else up until we're on solid ground. Said so you can't stand in the quicksand and pull somebody else out of it. So it makes sense. A lot of times when we're trying to save somebody else, like I've seen people marry someone because they're going to help them, she giggles. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. This is a really appropriate time to giggle. I tell you. It makes life really hard. And it, and it's, and I, I suggest then to look at what that real motivation is. Why, why do I want to pull somebody else out of the mire? Most of the time it's about wanting to feel better about myself. So we've got to make sure we're really looking at that so that we're not doing it from that place and then once we've you know you see someone who's developed of course they're spending time with people who need help but they're not spending time with them like hey let's go out and have a beer <laughs> you know it's not that kind of time it's like they're they are helping from a solid ground they're not emulating that person they're not becoming pals with that person they're someone who can give them real support and that if those if that person is really able they can really gain from that support so it's not like it's not the kind of thing where well I'm not going to be around those people because they're less it's that you have to we have to protect ourselves so that we don't lose ground on wholesome qualities. But we can still help others. And we can be compassionate towards them and kind towards them and not, um, you know, not... Uh, not seeing, not, not putting them down in any way. Not putting others down in any way. You can maybe see they're caught up in some, you know, horrible greed, hatred, delusion, you know, drama. And you can only give the help that they're able to take, and you can only give the help that you can really give from solid ground. I guess I, 
I started on this path about seven years ago, and um, I knew that I had to do that, to leave all the people that were in my life, all my friends, and I just, um, you know, seven years later, I still think about all these friends of mine that aren't friends anymore, and I miss them, and I, you know, there were so many great qualities about them, even though they were, you know, living really unskillful lives that were probably, for me, too much personal suffering, and I knew I had to grow and move away from all that, but yeah. I, I don't know why I'm still, you know, so connected, deeply connected, and think about them, and, mm-hmm. you know, wonder what they're doing, and I, I feel very attached to all these people still, and that, it's painful, I don't, I want to just be happy for them that they're, you know, following their lives and what works for them and be happy for myself that I'm happier but I haven't let go of that, I guess. I feel kind of guilty, like I just... So do you think you did anything wrong? No. I think I did a lot of right things. Yeah. But I don't know why it's coming, it just kind of persists in my consciousness that I miss, I miss a lot of that. I think it's worth really looking at the feeling that you're experiencing. And if you know of any of this process of how to notice where that feeling shows up in your body, and then really investigating yeah, investigating that. Um, the feeding your demons process um, by Lama Sultra Malayoni is really excellent for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm is really excellent for that and so I would I would recommend investigating the feelings that come with that and then of course you can always share merit with them you can do that work on a consciousness level that has the potential to help them if they're available to be helped so I think I probably should um, call that a close and uh, just thank you for your attention and and your kindness and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.